0: Good morning. Good to see y'all. Hope you are doing good. We've got an interesting text this morning. Um, Interesting feels like a little bit of an understatement, Uh, and not not just an interesting one, a a difficult one, Uh, one that um, lost me hours of sleep this week as we were wrestling with it, trying to figure out what in the world this is saying to us. And yet, and yet, there's such a beautiful, profound truth in this uh, in this passage that I want us to really wrestle with. And I want us to hear what God's actually saying to us in this. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me uh, as we step into this text together and ask the Lord to speak to us. God, we need you. We need you so much. We ask that you would be our teacher today. But God, I I don't, I don't want us to come away from today with more data. I want us to see you. And that's the point of this text, is to see you in ways that maybe we have not ever seen you or maybe we've lost sight of you. So would you teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Flannery O'Connor says of our age today that we have domesticated despair and learned to live with it happily. That in our age we have domesticated despair and learned to live with it happily. There, there's a we, we live in a naturalistic age in which things are primarily reduced down to molecules and data, right? We we live in an age in which we have we have we have tended to master all that we think we can put our hands to, and yet there are things in the human heart and the human soul and the human experience that we just can't quite touch. And so we feel them. We experience them. We, we feel despair, but we don't know what to do with it. So we pack it away, put a smile on our face, and go about our day, don't we? You see, this naturalistic age has taught us that the only thing that we can know is what we can see or measure. This is what science has done. We can, the, only things, or the, the only thing we can know is what we can see or what we can measure. Our, our age is defined, uh, the, Charles, the philosopher Charles Taylor says that we're defined by and framed in by the imminent frame. What he means by that is that the only thing that we can affirm as a culture are things that we have sense perception of, that we can touch, that, we can, that is right around us. Anything outside of that, we dismiss, we push away. And we also live in a technological age in which we have learned, so we think, how to accompl- or conquer anything with a little bit of technique and a little bit of elbow grease. In our age, there's not space to think about things that are beyond nature. We just deal with what we can touch, what we can see. And when claims of the supernatural emerge in our age, what do we do? We we dismiss We say that's that's just those are the relic ideas of a of a bygone era. That is simply the myth of the the historic or the primitive man. We have a tendency to dismiss all claims of the supernatural as uh, as unapprovable and irrelevant. But here's my question what if our what if our age is wrong? What if our age is wrong? And I don't mean the age out there, I mean the age that we all swim in, the, the age, the culture that we have all imbibed, those impulses that we have, that we have, we have acquired to how to do, how do navigate this world. <clears throat> the book of Job is a, um, is a fascinating one. If you've been with us as we've been walking through this um, book, you'll notice, uh, well I could say for the, those of us that are preaching, it feels like the sermons are getting harder and harder. Because the text is probing deeper and deeper into the human soul as it goes along. If you haven't been with us, and, and this is your first Sunday here, uh, we've been walking through the Book of Job, and the, and the book of Job is, is interesting and fascinating in so many ways. It's one of the greatest works of literature ever written, but it's not just literature. It is uncovering one of the most um, one, of, one of the most um, profound truths in all of reality. In the beginning of the book, Uh, what the text calls the Satan, the accuser, comes to God and asks to torment Job. And he does. Torment he does. God allows him to. And Job suffers in ways that none of us in this room have ever suffered. He underwent the, the, the burden and the weight and the damage that came from profound, profound suffering. And for For dozens of chapters in the middle of the book, we have Job and his friends wrestling with what is going on. How can we comprehend this? How can we understand this? Who's to blame? Job's friends blame him. Job blames God. Matter of fact, in Job 16, uh, in, in chapter 16, verse 12, he says this, I was at ease, but then he, God, broke me apart. You hear the accusation? I was at ease, but God broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. Needless to say, Job's not happy. But neither would we be, would we? He's he's wrestling with and having to reckon with things that are deep and profound. They defy mere tangible reality around Last week, Chad Kinzer led us through god's response or the first, part, first half of god 's response and there are there are a few different accusations that Job brings against God. One is this implicit uh, 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 implicit objection is, is God, are you wise or are you strong enough? Are you wise enough or are you strong enough and what Job. What God does for Job in chapters thirty-eight and thirty-nine is He takes him on a walk through creation, and He says, "Hey, do you see the do you see the mountain goats up there? Do you understand their breeding patterns? Do you understand how this works? Hey, hey, Job, do you see the ocean over there? Do you do you see where the where the water stops in the in the earth in, in the it meets the earth? Who do you think told it he could come this far and no further? Have have you noticed? Have you noticed, Job?" All of these things about creation, and he walks him through creation, and basically says, "You don't understand what you see, and you're not in control of it, but I am." Right, and that is chapters 38 and 39. Well, now we're doubling down. Now we're doubling down, because what Job is, or what God is dealing with in Job, is he's addressing the first two challenges that uh, challenges of his wisdom and challenges of his strength. But now he's going to move into what has been been very overt in Job's objections against God the question of God's justice what does god do with evil what does he do with wickedness this these chapters are the crescendo of the book and things are about to get really weird <laughs> really weird cuz now we're introduced to two creatures behemoth and leviathan i i Last I checked, Oklahoma City Zoo didn't have them there. Um, and let's be glad because they're weird. Let's look at chapter 40, verse 15. As last week, he, wa- he, he, he God walks Job through creation and says, hey, look at this, look at this, look at this. Now he comes to Job and he says, hey, behold Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins, and his power in his muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies. In the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh, for his shade the lotus tree covers him and the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Now listen to this. Can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? This beast, whatever he is, is ferocious. We see here his power. There's actually what's likely some euphemism in here pointing to the beast's virility, that there's this sense in which he is always present, always hiding, and always hungry. And we're left with, what do you do in the face of a beast like this? You tremble in fear. Job's not done, or God's not done. He now turns our attention to Leviathan. You thought Behemoth was weird. Now we get Leviathan, and we also get one of the funniest parts in the book. Job forty-one verse one. He says to Job, "Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook, or can you press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose and pierce his jaw with the hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to to take him for your servant forever?" Will <laughs> you play with him as with, you, as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? My girls are in the back. You want one on a leash? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons and his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him in battle. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Again. We're presented now with this Leviathan, this, this beast or this being that you don't want to play with. You're not going to mess with. If you do, it will go badly for you. You won't do it again. He, he goes on in verse 18. I won't keep silent concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip out his outer garment? Who could come near to him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. It goes on in verse 18. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. The ferocity of this beast. This is, this is no mere uh, animal that you would see at the zoo. This is, this is one that comes to consume. And then it goes on in verse 31. He says this, he makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high, and he is king over all the sons of pride. What we're presented with here is, is a being that is superior to all other beings. But here's the question we're left with. Who are these creatures, and what do you do with them? I mean, if you try to draw them, this is going to go weird. They're like this weird composite sketch of all these things. Well, fundamentally throughout church history, there's been two, do, two dominant ways to try to interpret this passage, to try to deal with it. And, and one is to simply say that these are naturalistic beings, that maybe it's, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's putting a little bit of flourish on it. But it, he basically, God is just doing in chapters 40 and 41 what he did in 30 and 38. He's basically saying, hey, look at creation out there. I've got it under control. Job interrupts him and goes, no, 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 I'm not done. Now let me tell you about two other creatures. That's essentially one interpretive schema. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Because inside the text are clues that it's pointing at something very very different. And if you read other literature of the day and you read elsewhere in the scriptures, you start to see a picture unpack that he's not talking here about mere naturalistic creatures. He's talking about something much more profound. In the text, Behemoth, in verse 19, says that he ranks first among the works of God. Now, it'd be really easy to skip over that line, but don't skip over that line. Because when the text talks about things being first among the works of God, he's not simply saying that this being is a a little bit more powerful than another one. There's actually a sense of primacy and priority and otherworldliness to it. You see this in the way way this, this kind of phrasing gets picked up in other parts of the Scripture. Leviathan, it's even more clear. I, I don't know of any creatures on the planet that actually breathe fire. But what's fascinating is when it talks about Leviathan stirring up the sea. Why is that important? Well, in Jewish thought and in Jewish ways of thinking, the sea was seen as the seat and the place of chaos. It was an evil thing, it was a thing to be avoided. It was a thing to, be, to, to, to go around, to, to stay away from, because the sea was understood as not just where chaos resided, but as the source. And In even Jewish mythology, that's the way it's seen, that the sea is the source of chaos, of the source of evil. It's something to be afraid of. And here it's saying basically that the sea, the place of chaos, is where Leviathan goes, goes for a picnic. He stirs the waters. This idea of sea imagery is is very clearly linking this creature and hence the others to this idea of the supernatural. Behemoth is described in similar ways that the Canaanite god Mot is described, who is understood as the god of the dead. And Leviathan is described elsewhere in Scripture and elsewhere inside of uh, even some old uh, older Jewish apocalyptic literature. Um, that both of these creatures are seen as the source of evil and wickedness. So this is what Job hears. When he hears behemoth and Leviathan, he's not like, hey, which zoo is it at? He goes, oh, we're talking about that now. That's what happens with Job. This gets picked up a little bit in Isaiah 26 and 27. There are a few other places where Leviathan's name shows up in Scripture, but this is one of them. Isaiah says this in chapter 26, verse 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and there will be no more cover uh, and, and will no more cover it slain. Then it says this in chapter 1 of verse 27. In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will lay the dragon that is in, or he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. When I was reading through commentaries, one of my favorite commentaries on Revelation, as when he gets to the beasts in Revelation, actually picks up on this and he says the, what he's pointing back to are these two beasts. He's, he's There's connections here that are in the language. The, the language, we can't say precisely what Job understands here, but what we do know is that Job is not seeing these as mere creatures that are a little stronger than the other ones, that what Job is seeing here and hearing here are a different order of being. He's, he's recognizing that God is pointing to the reality of supernatural evil in the world. He hears about these beasts and his mind goes to chaos, death, accuser, the enemy. That's where Job's mind goes and it's rightfully so. See, human history is not created by a series of atomic collisions. That's not how human history moves ahead. Naturalistic explanations of human history fall flat. What Job is forced to confront is that supernatural evil does exist. It is powerful, it does damage, and it is to be feared. It cannot be overtaken by human wit or human strength. And this is what Job is confronted with. But it actually leads us to two other confrontations in the text that are even more profound. The first is God's confrontation with supernatural evil. Let's go back to the verses that we read a second ago, Job Job forty one, starting in verse one. God asked Job, Can you draw a Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his mouth or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will you speak or will he speak to you in soft words? Go on to verse 7. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Again, reminding Job that what he's dealing with is something that's way above his pay grade. But then he goes on and says this. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He's laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. No one dares stir up Leviathan. But then listen to this. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You see, Job is confronted with and forced to face the reality that supernatural evil is at work in his life. He may have tried to blame God. He may have tried to blame nature. He may have tried to point to all kinds of sources of his suffering. But ultimately, what we know, because we read the beginning of the book that Job didn't get, that the enemy was at work, right? That the Satan was at work. That the Satan had asked to torment him and was tormenting him. Job didn't know that, but we know that. But what God is doing here is is bringing Job around to understand, you don't know what you're dealing with, but I do. You can't touch Leviathan. Then what makes you think you can touch me? Because he can't touch me. Do you see the power in this? I think I speak for all of us when I say that Whether we label it this or not, we encounter evil all the time in ways that we don't know what to do with. Like, life is way more like a war zone than a tourist John, isn't it? We sometimes want to treat life as a, as a, as a, as a, a tr- tourist escapade. We're just going to go and we're going to do new things and try new things and eat new food and encounter and, and have new experiences. But often it's just because we're trying to mask the fact that it's a war. It's a war. So often we're confronted by life and things that are that are beyond just the physical around us. We're 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 wrecked by or people around us are wrecked by addictions, by abuse. I've got I've got a friend who has has, has she was abused so deeply and dearly as a as a little Little kid, you can't explain it by just going, some people just do bad things. There's like supernatural evil wrapped up in what's gone on here. Throughout human history, we see slavery and oppression. We see all kinds of evil in the world. And this is why Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 that it's not against flesh and blood that we wrestle, but actually against powers and principalities of the year. He reminds us that not all that we war against is mere physicality. But then we watch Jesus encounter supernatural evil. We cower, we cower under its weight and Jesus, Jesus sees the demoniac, tells the demons get out. Jesus wrecks perfectly, perfectly good funerals by raising the dead, so now we gotta do something else. He, he, he comes to the people that have been hurt and oppressed and with the word heals them. At the beginning of his ministry, he encounters temptation from the enemy that none of us have ever understood. And he makes it just look easy. Easy. So while we may look at Leviathan and, terror and, and scream in terror, God doesn't. There's a few things that I think we learn from this text that are really critical for us to keep in mind and for us to learn. The first is this, that supernatural evil has agency. Now, I say this for, for a reason. What we're not dealing with is mere random chaos, but neither are we dealing with a sovereign God who's basically deploying these evil things out there so that he can bring about some good, and he's the one, like, we, God is sovereign, but he's not the author of evil. God didn't come to the Satan and go, hey, I got an idea. Why, why, don't, you, why don't you go do this? Satan comes and asks for permission. To torment him. Now God allows him to. We'll get to that in just a second. But but do you understand? The evil is not sourced in God. Evil itself has agency. There are evil beings that have agency in the world. The second is this. Supernatural evil is on a really short leash. Now sometimes I wish he was on a shorter leash. But when God talks about putting a hook in his mouth, in Leviathan's mouth, when he talks about reining him in with harpoons and spears, he's talking about restraining and constraining the effects of this beast. And what God is saying is, you can't put a hook in his mouth, but I already have. Now, he still allows for reasons that we none of us understand, and this book never even explains. But God is is, is, allows evil to do some work but it's on a short leash it never goes beyond where God allows it to go this also is a reaction, a rejection of dualism because in our world there's this kind of idea even outside of Christian circles where it's like there's good and there's evil and they're duking it out we're not quite sure who's going to win is it going to be rocky or does that mean Russian like which one's going to win we don't know we hope, we hope the good guy wins but that they're equally matched. And what we get here is a picture where it's like, hey, you think Leviathan's terrified, I actually do have him on a leash. There's no dualism. God has a sovereign power that the evil forces can't touch. But then third, and it's hinted out here in the text, but made more explicit in the rest of scripture, is that in the end, supernatural evil will be completely destroyed. Supernatural evil will one day, finally, and fully be destroyed. A Leviathan doesn't win. A Leviathan doesn't win. Christopher Ashe, in his Job commentary, says this. The point of Job 41 is to make us tremble at the awesome and fell power of the prince of evil. In other words, we are supposed to be in awe of behemoth and Leviathan. If we, thought, if we thought evil was bad, when we come face to face with the Leviathan, we realize it's infinitely more frightening than we had thought. You, had, you cannot begin to take on this problem of evil, Job, and you know that. But then he follows up, but I can, says the Lord, and that is the point. In the same way of Job 38 and 39, God showing that he is both wise and sovereign in control of the natural world is now saying he is sovereign and good and in control over the supernatural world. That God is not just in control of, 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 the, the, of the creatures of this world, but actually of supernatural ones as well. And this brings us to the second confrontation. And that is God's confrontation with Job. And for that, we're going to turn back to Job 40, starting in verse 6. Job 40, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? He says this to Job. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. See, Job's questioning of God comes with this sense in which if Job's blaming God for everything, then who's here to save him? And so what God does is he turns to Job. And he goes, what, are you, what accusation are you bringing against me? Do you, can you save yourself? Can you, can you strap, strap up with all the weapons and the gear and go to battle and win? No, you can't, Job. You can't. In the face of... In the face of much that we face, we will often say with our with our mouths and with our minds, God, we trust you with what we have. And yet when it comes down to it, all I'm doing is gripping and grasping at things to try to control a situation. I I find in myself this urging to to think that somehow I can make this better. I can make this different. And with that's an implicit judgment of God himself. And sometimes after we've tried to control it and we can't, then we just move into denial or survival mode. I try to convince myself that evil's not real or I, or I just try to hang on and survive on my own. But there's a confrontation here where God comes to Job and won't let him end there. As Blake mentioned this is Palm Sunday and, and we think and, and, and if you grew up in the church maybe you saw the maybe you, maybe you even participated in the kids plays where we, we bring out the palms and we wave them and, and we celebrate this, this, uh, this day in which Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and everybody's happy everybody's happy Many of the Jews at the time were ecstatic because they thought that the Messiah of Israel was coming in to step into the throne of David and actually, and actually exert power and influence and, and bring, bring an end to Roman occupation and oppression. And they were excited. Hosanna, Hosanna to God. And they're welcoming the Messiah into the city. And what they didn't know was that Satan and supernatural forces were at work to kill Jesus in five days. They were oblivious. They were oblivious. And yet, it's actually in that very instance in which Jesus allows the evil to crush him, he actually crushes evil itself. It's actually in his death and in his subsequent resurrection that evil is dealt a death blow. That it's actually in this moment where it looks like evil has won that God himself wins. Listen to the words of Ray Ortland as he's talking about the, God's victory over Leviathan back in Isaiah 27. He says, The victory God has won over everything set against his glory and our happiness is the greatest truth. In the universe, God has not only restrained evil, He has not only made it serve His good purposes, but will also annihilate evil at the end of time. His threefold, hard and great and strong sword will hack to pieces the threefold Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, the dragon that is in the sea. No compromise, no mercy. It will be good versus evil, simple as that, and evil will be destroyed fully and forever. And then he says this. How does that battle play out? At the cross. At the cross where the suffering servant became the Christus victor, the Christ with victory. We don't have a hook in Leviathan's mouth, but he does, and we can trust them.